confidence, for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And I'll pray. God, I thank you again for your word and for the testimony we have on virtually every page of your faithfulness to honor your word and to fulfill all that you have promised. And I pray that as we um, this morning think on this book and look at it together, that our hearts would be strengthened in faith to believe you, trusting you, God, to know that you will accomplish all that concerns us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, it's great to be back again. Appreciate everyone's prayers. <clears throat> I may be coughing a little bit. This will be the longest I've talked in three or four weeks. Um, but those of you who don't know, I got, I guess, COVID, and um, it developed into bilateral pneumonia, and um, I kept getting worse. I, I was losing a lot of breath, and when I, um, I had um, Rob here um, ordered me to get some blood work done and some x-rays, and then he consulted with a pulmonary doctor and said I needed to have a CAT scan done um, to make sure I didn't have a pulmonary embolism. And so that meant going to the emergency room in Fredericksburg. And when they checked my oxygen levels, they were in the low 70s. So they tell me that's not a good thing. And, um, but with oxygen, they went right up into the upper 90s. So I spent the night in the ER. Not a pleasant experience. And they would probably say the same about having me there. <laughs> um, and discharged myself the next morning. Um, they weren't happy about that, but um, I knew I'd be getting a lot of good care at home um, with Patsy, and she was phenomenal. Again, I'm not a very good patient, so you sh you're praying for me. You should have been praying for Patsy. Um, and Rob and Jack have both been looking after me, as well as my um, um, personal care physician. So three doctors and a nurse and lots of prayer, and I'm very grateful for all of it. Um, not the least of that is the prayer. Before I went into the ER, I called the elders to come over to the house and pray for me. You know, it was really at that point that things began to turn around for the good. So just been overwhelmed with, with all the prayer and expressions of love and um, just been a blessing. So thank you so much for standing with me um, in your prayers. Um, as I was looking at my day timer, it's been, I've not preached in the last four Sundays. John Forrest preached for me the first, and then Kelly's preached for me the last three. And so this is the fifth Sunday um, since I last preached. And I believe in the 35 plus years since seminary, that's the longest I've gone without preaching. So it's been a little bit of a mini sabbatical. And, and I've gone 25 days since the last time that I spoke. And because I was speaking in camp, teaching in camp, when I finally got two weeks to continue and had to drop out. So that's been 25 days, and that's the longest I think I've gone without having to teach. So this has been a little bit of a mini sabbatical for me. I wouldn't recommend <laughs> doing it the way I've done, but it has been really a gift from God. I, I told Patsy um, before any of this happened that I just was really just starting to feel just kind of afraid and, um, and was just really wanting to have at least a solid week not having to think about anything, do anything, and so God's given me three or four weeks here, and, um, and I'm grateful. It's really been good. I've had a lot of time in, in the Word and praying um, and exercising as well. I've exercised more in these last few weeks than I probably have in the last several years, um, riding a stationary bike, taking a trip and not ever leaving, um, <laughs> and um, walking, and also it's been great. So again, I'm thankful. But when you go five weeks without preaching and you don't remember the sermons from one Sunday to the next, at least I don't, um, it's probably time to do a little bit of review. And normally, as you know, I like to just march through and, um, and look at, at the word verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. We started Ezra back in February and um, we haven't gone very far. Um, and we started Nehemiah back in June. So um, I want to review this morning. 
And, and just, we're going to cover um, in a bird's eye view with the focus on opposition and some lessons, some application from opposition from the first six chapters. But before we do that, <coughs> if you'll remember, the name Nehemiah means the Lord has comforted. And that's a good thing to remember because this is a man who has been through so much opposition in the 12 years that he was in Jerusalem, and especially the first 52 days of building the wall. And he's been, been assailed from every angle. And you don't go through that kind of constant opposition without needing to be comforted. And he was a great comfort to the people of Israel. When he showed up, Israel was in dire straits. They were people who were dejected, who were ashamed, who were humiliated, and who were extremely vulnerable, all because there were no walls around the city. So he came there to minister to the people, not just to build a wall. But he knew the most effective way to minister to these people to comfort their broken, downcast hearts was to get that wall built. And it was a great comfort to the people of Israel. But Nehemiah never called himself the leader of Israel. And when he took a leadership position, really bestowed on him by the king, um, the king of, of um, King Artaxerxes, <coughs> he it, this only demonstrated humility. He did not lord his leadership over people. Uh, he came to serve. He was, he's a great picture of, of Christ, actually. He actually refers to himself as the servant of God. And so that has in, instructed me as we've worked through this book because most commentaries spend a lot of time focusing on the leadership skills of Nehemiah. That was not his focus. His focus was simply to be serving God. And this was a task God gave him to do. Can you learn about leadership from this book? Absolutely. But I think Nehemiah, if he were standing here, he would say, you're missing the point if you're focusing on leadership. This book I did not write so that you would learn to be better leaders. This I came simply to serve, trusting God for a, a task that appeared to be impossible. And so the focus of Nehemiah was not leadership, but we find it was actually prayer. And as a servant of God, he was constantly crying out to God. And at least 12 separate times in this book, prayer is mentioned. And that is really the emphasis of Nehemiah's life. Not leadership, but prayer in serving God. He was in Jerusalem 12 years on the first time he was there. He's going to come back later at the end of the book. The wall, as we just read, only took 52 days to build. That was amazing, really miraculous. He returned in 444 B.C. We know that date is firm. Because of the decree of Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem, and the significance of that date is it begins God's calendar as prophesied in the book of Daniel of when Christ would return. And ultimately, um, <clears throat> really the whole history of Israel and when Christ would return the second time to establish his kingdom. The 70 weeks of Daniel. And so Daniel prophesied and said, once this decree is issued, you will know exactly when the Messiah will be cut off, 400 and, I forget the math, 83 years later, I believe it was. And then there's going to be a pause, um, a parenthesis would be better, of the church age. Still in the time of the Gentiles that Daniel talked about, but the church age. And at the end of the church age would be the last week of Daniel, the last seven years, and that would be the tribulation period. And it's during the tribulation, particularly at the end of it, where God is establishing his kingdom on earth and Christ returns to rule. All of that was laid out in great detail by Daniel. Nehemiah shows up 13 years after Ezra came to Israel and 94 years after Zerubbabel. So from the beginning of the book of Ezra to the end of Nehemiah, 110 years are being covered. 
And the focus here on the first part of Nehemiah is the reconstruction of the wall, chapters 1 to 7. And then chapters 8 to 13 will be the restoration of the people of Jerusalem and Israel. The significance of the wall, as I've said, it takes away the reproach of the people. It takes away their shame and humiliation. Now they have definition. They have protection. But the greatest significance of the wall is it speaks to the covenant faithfulness of God. God has not forgotten his people. He said he would defend them. He said he would establish them. You can't be defended and you can't be established without a walled city. And so this was really God's doing. And that's the significance of chapter 6 where it says they recognize the enemies that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. I actually prefer the literal reading in the margin where it says this work had been accomplished from our God. In other words, not with God's help, but God did it. There's no other explanation for this happening in 52 short days than God did it. But again, the significance of the walls is not just that the reproach of the people has been taken away, but this is a, a statement in stone of the faithfulness, the covenant faithfulness of God. And nothing can keep God's will from being accomplished. That's what that wall says. All the enemies that were arrayed against Israel, all the peoples that wanted to keep that wall from being built and everything they did to stop it, and it was still accomplished in 52 short days. Nothing will keep God from, from fulfilling his covenant promises to his people. Now, you can't read these first six chapters and not just be impressed with how much is coming against the people in Nehemiah, particularly chapter 4 and chapter 6, where the opposition is being spelled out. And there are so many lessons from this, and I just want to spend the rest of the time just talking about that, as long as my breath holds up. First, the reality of the opposition. You know, we, we are not um, ignorant, nor should we be ignorant, of everything that's going on around us in the world today. These are interesting times. And I'm always reminded when I say that, that, that um, there's an old Chinese um, curse that says, may you live in interesting times. <laughs> it's a kind of a backhanded blessing or a curse. And we are not living in a cursed time, but we are living in a time when it seems that God has let Satan have a really long leash. He seems to have a freer hand than maybe he's ever had. I don't know that, but I know in my lifetime, it seems that the wheels are falling off everywhere you look. Everywhere. Everywhere. There's no exception. Any place that you would look for stability, to where maybe you, if you have any gray hair at all, would say, I can remember 50 years ago when it was like this. I can't think of a single area where you can say, I can remember 10 years ago when it was like this. Everything is rapidly, it appears, just to be falling into chaos. Now, we know that Jesus is holding all things together. And we know that whatever freedom he gives to the Satan, he remains in absolute control of everything that goes on. So there's never a reason for us to lose our faith, to lose our confidence, our hope, or to lose our love for the Lord. Because God remains in absolute control I appreciate reading a book about um, Satan many years ago, written by a fine Christian author, <coughs> and he used that illustration of Satan on a leash. And he says, no matter how powerful the enemy is, he remains nothing more than a dog on a leash to God. And he exists because God allows it. And as Martin Luther um, wrote and sang, in a mighty fortress is our God, he said, one small word from God will fell him. That's all it's going to take. God's not wringing his hands. He's not saying, I didn't know this was going to happen. He, he is using the events today in ways that we will never know till we're with him in glory to his glory. But we do know from God's word that Satan is going to be given more and more freedom 
before he is finally put out of business, where Jesus returns and casts him into hell and ultimately into the lake of fire. So we have an enemy. And as Christians, this should never surprise us, as bad as things get. He is by nature <coughs> adversarial. His name means adversary. He is relentless. He is merciless. There is no kindness in him. He is never satisfied with simply defeating anyone. He's not that kind of enemy. We don't see this kind of enmity. This is the kind of person who wants to not just kill, but to do everything he can to drag that out and make it as painful and miserable as possible. I'll never forget a time in high school where I saw two boys fighting. And when the one boy had been beaten up and defeated, the other boy wasn't done with him yet. And it was awful, just awful. And that kind of hatred that will not even stop is purely satanic. That's our enemy. He doesn't care how weak you are. He doesn't care how overcome you are. He is not finished with you. He will never let up. That's why throwing in the towel, saying, I just can't take anymore. I'm just going to throw him in the towel. Do you think that lets Satan say, okay, I don't, I'm just going to leave you alone now? What a mistake. He will never, as long as you are a Christian, and you will always be a Christian if you put your faith in Christ. You may become a faithless Christian, but you're still a child of God. And as long as you're a child of God, which is forever, as long as we are in this body, you have an enemy, and he will not let that's his nature. His nature is to steal and kill and destroy. And he is constantly seeking to devour the people of God. If he can't kill you physically, he wants to, to destroy your faith, your love for the Lord, and your hope. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in his first letter to the Thessalonians, and he says, I have to write to you because I'm so concerned about your faith because I know you're going through such trial, because of all the afflictions that you're facing. But he says, I told you this was going to happen. So he says this in the, there <coughs> in that first letter. And he says, when I could stand it no more because I was so concerned that you would fall away from the faith, that's when I wrote to find out what was going on. And I am thrilled at the report that I hear, that you are standing firm in the faith. And he also spoke of their love. And he says, and I pray that your love might excel still more. But the first thing, even though we know that faith, hope, love, Paul says in Corinthians, the greatest of these is love. But when Paul was writing to the Thessalonians, the first thing, the most important thing that he was concerned about was their faith. He wasn't concerned that they would stop being Christians. You can't undo what God has done. And if God has saved you, you are a child of God, and I can no more be undone than your own natural birth can be undone because you've been born again from above by the Spirit of God. But you can lose the faith. You can stop believing, stop walking with God. We are in a perpetual battle. As A.W. Tozer said, this is not a playground. This is a battleground. We've had it so good in this country. And in this state, haven't we? I just wrote a letter to all the incoming students who will be arriving soon to his hill this year. And I presume that their parents will read the letter as well. And in it, I just want, I wanted to tell them what they can expect about how we were responding to COVID and infectious diseases this school year. So there's no surprises. And I started out the letter and I said, you need to understand Texas has recognized the religious liberties of Christian institutions such as ours. And they have said that they cannot make mandates or restrictions against any of our activities. And that is a good thing. It is. It's a gift from God. And we should pray, not only for our own state, but for this nation as a whole and the nations around the world, that those religious liberties, which are not granted by the state, but by God, would be recognized and honored by the state. 
And I'm very thankful we live in a state where we have a governor at this time who recognizes those rights. And he's defending us, not always perfectly, but so much better than many other places. So we have to recognize that though we live in a good place, Satan is not a respecter of governors. And he will do everything he can to attack us from every side. Satan, the scripture says, is the God of this world. Satan says he is the ruler. Scripture says he is the ruler of this world. And scripture says the world is in his power. Those are very strong statements. That's from 2 Corinthians 4.4, John 12.31, and 1 John 5.19. Listen again. God describes Satan. This isn't me. This is God describes Satan as the God of this world, the ruler of this world, and the world is in his power. Let that sink in. God has given that to Satan. He has allowed Satan at this time to be the God of this world, the ruler of this world, and for the world to be in his power. And we are aliens to Satan. We belong to a different kingdom, God's kingdom. Our citizenship is now in heaven, not on earth. So what does that make us? Enemies. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to preach. You don't have to witness. You don't have to read your Bible. And I'm telling you, if you stop doing all those things, you can stop coming to church. You can stop telling people about Jesus. You can stop preaching, witnessing, whatever. You can burn your Bible, but it does not change the fact that you are an alien in this world. And the God of this world hates you because you don't belong to him. Pure and simple. So, so abandoning the faith, turning away from Christ, does not take his thumb off of you. You need to realize that. The best thing we can do is to resist the devil by drawing near to God. Giving in, throwing in the towel, is not going to change who he is. He is a merciless adversary. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers of darkness, from Ephesians 6. Our goal, and this is something I think the church is in great confusion on today, our goal is not to establish the kingdom of God on earth. It is not. That is something Jesus accomplishes. God accomplishes that, establishing his son as king at the end of the ages. We will never see God's kingdom established on this earth. We cannot bring in God's kingdom. It's not going to happen. This is Satan's world. And God will bring in his kingdom. And in doing so, he will destroy all the kingdoms of this world. I know Jesus said, pray in this way. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. Amen. But Jesus wasn't saying, get busy and build my kingdom. The kingdom of God is in, all, is in us because the king is in us. Where the king is, his kingdom is. But Jesus is very clear in his word. Satan is the God of this world. And that is not going to change until Jesus comes back again. In the meantime, Satan, this is his kingdom. He is in control. God has permitted that. And all your prayers and all your efforts to try to establish his kingdom on earth are not going to happen. That doesn't mean we give up on the world. That doesn't mean we stop praying for this world. I've already said, we need to pray that the freedoms we have here in Texas would be freedoms that everybody would enjoy all over the world. But even should that happen, that doesn't mean that God's kingdom has come. God's kingdom is going to be so much better than anything we could accomplish by our voting or our activism, and I'm all for those things, but that will never bring in his kingdom. Our goal is to resist the devil to draw near to God, and to remain true to Jesus Christ, no matter what happens. That's our goal. One thing we want is just to hear the Lord say, well done, 
good and faithful servant. That's our goal. He's not going to say, why didn't you do more to bring in my kingdom? He's going to say, good and faithful servant. I hope we each hear that. The scripture says that when Jesus returns, he asks the question, will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? He doesn't say, will the Son of Man find his kingdom on earth? He doesn't expect to find his kingdom on earth. His kingdom is within us, but it is not going to be on this earth. He wants to come and find his people trusting him. That's what he's looking for. What are our resources against this demonic, satanic opposition that we face? Well, we need to know that even though Satan is the god of this world and the world lies in his power, he has been defeated. His head has been crushed. The world has been overcome. And we have been set free from the power of sin and death. These are things that Scripture says. First John just says this in one way over and over again in various ways. Satan has been defeated. The world has been overcome. And we have been set free from the power of sin and death. Though Satan has been defeated, he has not surrendered. See, that's again part of his nature. He never gives up. He never quits. We would, right? He won't. He is a defeated foe. His head has already been crushed. And he's still kicking and screaming. And he will continue that way. Jesus has overcome the devil. And he has made us overcomers. Scripture says this. First John, John writes and says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome. And even though <coughs> he has made us overcomers, he is, expects us, I shouldn't say even though, because he has made us overcomers, he expects us to what? Overcome. Not be overcome, but overcome. That is the one common theme between the seven letters, the seven churches that Jesus speaks to in Revelation 2 and 3. There's problems with each of those seven churches, except for one. But they all live in circumstances where there is something to overcome. One of those churches, Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. Can you imagine? being in a city where Satan lives. And Jesus says, overcome. You better overcome or I'm going to take away your lampstand. And that has, in fact, happened in most of those churches, if not all of them. You have a hard, in those cities, you have a hard time finding a vibrant church today. So he says, you are overcomers. Therefore, I expect you, no matter the opposition, we can all be Nehemiahs. No matter the opposition, Jesus says, no matter how evil the days live in or the circumstances that you have to live through, overcome. Isn't that amazing? He knows. He knows. But he also knows what he has already accomplished and what he is able to do in us. No one will be able to stand before God in heaven at the bema seat of Christ and say, I lost the faith because of what you allowed me to go through. <laughs> Can you imagine? And he's going to say, do you not see me in my glory? Do you not have any inkling of what I am able to do because of who I am? And I was in you. I was in you. And I was more than sufficient for what you went through. The author of Hebrews says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Put aside the sin which so easily entangles. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You don't find a lot of empathy for faithless people in Scripture. We do find a lot of concern that Christians might lose their faith. But we find no empathy for those that did because there's no reason. There's no good excuse 
when the faithful one, the Lord Jesus Christ, lives in us. How can we stand before the faithful one who lived in us and say, I was faithless because you weren't adequate? That's a lie. And there will be no lie spoken before the throne of God. He has made us overcomers and he expects us to overcome. Go back and read those messages to the seven churches. 1 John 5, 4 says, our faith is the victory. Our faith is the victory. So you can see why the devil wants to attack that one thing. And Christ is the victor. Paul told the Ephesians, put on the armor of God that you might stand firm in the evil day. The armor of God is simply Jesus. We get all caught up in the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith. And by the way, the shield of faith does what? Extinguishes all the flaming missiles of the enemy. We have so many flaming missiles coming. What do we need? The shield of faith. What does the enemy want to do? Attack our faith. Because it's the faith that is the victory. It is the faith that extinguishes the missiles of the enemy, the flaming arrows. We put on Jesus. And as Nehemiah, we pray. We pray. That's the last part. When you get through the armor mentioned in Ephesians 6, the focus is again on prayer. It's not we put on the armor so that we can fight. We put on the armor so we can stand firm and continue to pray. Why the emphasis on prayer? I know nothing that demonstrates faith more than prayer. When you stop believing, you stop praying. Or you, or you pray, but you don't believe. Don't really expect that God's going to do anything. Don't really think he's going to hear you. You're just going through the motions. Probably the litmus test for faith is how's your prayer life. Are you talking to God? Are you giving everything to him? Are you making your request known with thanksgiving? Because when that stops, you stop believing. And the enemy has his victory. Our faith is the victory. And prayer is such a clear, simple litmus test of where we are in our faith. We stand firm. And sometimes we have to fight. That comes out in Nehemiah, doesn't it? The fighting, I hope, will never be with guns and weapons. It was <coughs> with weapons, with swords, spears for Nehemiah. But even if it should never come to that, and I pray it never would, we know we must contend for the truth. We must rebuke, we must exhort, we must encourage, and there may be times when we even have to exercise church discipline. This is contending for the faith. Faith is not simply passive. There's a, there's a large passive element to faith, I get that. But in contending for the faith, which Paul says to do, he exhorted Timothy to contend for the faith not to abandon the faith. We sometimes have to push back. That's going to happen with, among ourselves when we see something going on. That's just, it's not true to Jesus. It's destructive to the body. We need to stand up, contend, rebuke, exhort, all with grace, but because we're in a battle and we have to take it seriously. What is all this about? Well, as I've said, the reasons for the opposition are basically just very simple. We don't belong to the enemy. And that makes us his enemy. We are distinct from this world. And our distinctiveness <coughs> is construed by the world to be condemnation of the world. And in a sense, it is. You love the people in the world, for God so loved the world, he was not talking about the world system. He was talking about the population of this planet. So you can hate the world system because it's Satan's system. 
Or you can love it. You can be a lover of this world, and that makes you an adulteress to God. Friendship with the world is adultery, is adultery toward God. And we should hate what God hates. And he hates this world system. Everything about it is antichrist. It is antichrist. Everything in this world system, make no mistake, it's Satan's system. It's okay to hate it and to long for Jesus' kingdom, thy kingdom come. And I pray, I come more and more, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And what are we praying when we say, Lord Jesus, come quickly? Thy kingdom come, aren't we? Thy kingdom come. But in the meantime, we are the enemies of this world system. We love the world. We are not condemning the people in the world. God doesn't even do that until the judgment time comes. In the meantime, he is convicting the world through his presence in us. I think this is what Jesus was saying when he says that when I send the Holy Spirit, he will be in you and he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And I think there's a connection there. How does the Holy Spirit convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment? Well, at this time, through His presence in us. I've talked about that before. And so you can be around family members who aren't walking with God. You can be around unbelievers who know that you're a Christian. Sometimes they may not even know you're a Christian, and they can't stand your presence. And you go, what did I do? Nothing. What did I say? Nothing. But it's the darkness hating the light. And they're under conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment by the mere presence of the Holy Spirit within us. Nehemiah said to the people who wanted to help with the rebuilding of the wall, remember what he said? You have no part of us. See, he wasn't condemning them, but he was saying you are different than us. And we will maintain the distinction. That's why Jesus says you are salt and light of the earth. And if the salt has lost its saltiness, it's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out. The distinctiveness is what the world needs. And it is simultaneously convicting, and he can even can sound condemning, but it's what the world needs for us to be different from them. The world will never be reached by us losing that distinctiveness. The forms of opposition, and I'm trying to march through here, this is all in summary. We've looked at all these things already in these six chapters. There is opposition that was <coughs> internal, and there was opposition that was external. The internal opposition, um, <coughs> I'm sorry, the external opposition took two forms. It was first against the people of Jerusalem as a whole, and then they focused in on Nehemiah himself. So in chapter 4, it is the external opposition against the people of Israel as a whole. What kind of things did they do? How did the opposition manifest itself? Ridicule, mocking, hatred, despising them, demoralizing them, even armed threat, conspiracy to attack and kill, discouragement and fear. The things that are most often repeated are ridicule and fear. Ridicule and fear. Ridicule and fear. You ever see that? Even voice a contrary opinion to what is the standard opinion today, and you are ridiculed. You're a conspiracy theorist. You're giving misinformation, and it's truth. It's truth, but you can't even get it out there. Not through the media, because again, why should we? It's Satan's system. It's not the media system. They think it is. It is Satan's system. We can talk all day long about whether there's this conspiracy, that conspiracy. I think it's fruitless. We know there is a conspirator. And there may not be all these people getting together in some back room, you know, and, and, and planning out, hatching out what they're going to do to control this world. It doesn't need to happen. There is a conspirator. And it is the one who is the God and ruler of this world. And it is Satan. And one of his primary tools is ridicule, 
followed closely by fear. I know lots of people have different opinions about whether we should even be meeting like this. We conducted summer camp, and um, COVID went through camp. Hard time. I'd say most of our summer staff got sick. Well, we can't isolate them all. We can't quarantine them. And so the, as they were sick with fevers, we kept them away from the campers. And we kept the parents as informed as we possibly could. We have this many kids with fevers, this many camp staff with fevers. We wanted them to know exactly what was going on. All the while praying for favor. And God gave favor. I'm so thankful for that. We had very few parents pull their kids out of camp. Very, very few. Less than 10%. Um, a few others that decided to cancel and not have their kids come in camp. But on the whole, we had two weeks, we had 127 kids signed up for both weeks. And I think the total for, for either of those two weeks of parents pulling their kids out was something like maybe 15, 20 at the most. So we had over 100 kids still come to camp. And probably the most repeated refrain we heard, at least that I heard, from parents was, thank you. And one dad said to me, my Bible says we are not to be ruled by fear. And I said, you know, my Bible says the same thing. <laughs> it's a form of opposition to get us running around saying the sky is falling, the sky is falling. As long as Jesus is on the throne and he's holding this world together, the sky is not falling. He is in control. And we should never be ruled by fear. It is Satan's tactic, not God's. There was also attack against Nehemiah. And that was the last sermon I preached, and then I got sick. Don't know if there's any connection. He was attacked personally because it wasn't working to attack the congregation. So they said, okay, we're going to narrow our attack. Instead of attacking everybody, we're just going to focus in on Nehemiah. And we see the enemy do that. When there seems to be a particularly effective leader put into place, oh my word, he comes under attack. This is why we should pray for those Christian men and women we know that are serving in politics. Many years ago when our kids were young, we took them to Austin to, as a homeschool event um, to show them um, how the political system worked how lobbying worked. Lobbying has a bad name, but it doesn't, it's not all bad. Lobbying basically means that constituents go to the office of their representative and tell them what concerns them face-to-face. -face. That's lobbying. So if you ever call up your representative and say, I'm concerned about this, you have just lobbied. That's the best, most basic form of lobbying. So we're getting this explained to us, and there's a young Christian businessman who's talking to us. It's his first term in office in Austin. And I don't remember his name or where he lived, <coughs> but this young Christian businessman is standing there almost in tears, said, I don't know that I would have done this if I knew how I would be so viciously attacked. And not just me, but my wife, my children, and even the business that the family has owned for years. Everything that is in its orbit, my orbit, he says, has been viciously assailed. And he stood there and said, please, pray for me and the other believers who have signed up for this. And we should. Because the leaders face particular attack by the enemy. The things in particular that Nehemiah had to face was uh, the, <coughs> the enemy wanted to distract him away from what his calling and his purpose was, to get him to go out and meet with those leaders. Remember, it'd be a day out there, a day with them, a day back, just three days, but it was a distraction, taking him away from what God had called him to do. And their intent was to kill him. But because he was a man of prayer, he sensed this is not what God wants for me. He knew this is not God's calling. It's a good thing, could perhaps even work toward reconciliation, if you want to call it that. He knew. 
This is not, you see, many times we just have that check in our heart when we approach God. God, is this what you want me to do? And we just don't feel right about it. That's your answer. You don't need to wait and hear a clear yes or a clear no. That reservation, that hesitancy that you're sensing is God's answer to you. It's like when a child, when you go, a child approaches a parent and says, you think I could go out and do this? And, and, you, and, you, and, and he sees you just have to think about it. Any sensitive child would say, I don't know that I need to do this if, if dad, mom has this kind of reservation in answering me. Something's not right here. Do I want to persuade them over their reservation? And a wise child would say no. He had to face ungodly counsel from a prophet nonetheless. A prophet who told them they are conspiring to kill you. They're coming at any time. You need to go into the temple and, and save yourself. Remember? Wow. Ungodly counsel in an attempt to create fear that would cause him to act in his own self-interest and against the will of God. He had to face slander and false accusation. Remember, they wrote an open letter, easiest way to slander and malign somebody. Just write an open letter and put it in the newspaper and say, Dear Charlie, this is what I have against you, but I'm publishing it in the newspaper. I'm putting it on the Internet. How can you possibly defend yourself? And that's what they did to Nehemiah. Slander, false accusation. And maybe the hardest thing, Tobiah, the Ammonite, who had children who had married into Israel. And he was wealthy. And he was personal friends with all the most powerful people in the nation. And they all regarded Tobiah as a friend. Tobiah's the guy who said, even if a fox jumps on that wall, it'll knock the wall down. And they had nothing but good to say about Tobiah. Everybody around Nehemiah, all the people who should have been standing with him are going, Nehemiah, you're the problem. Tobiah is our friend. He's isolated. And see, that's one of the things the enemy wants to do. He wants to get us to think well, we're all alone. Paul wrote and he said, at my first defense, no one stood with me. Everyone abandoned me. Yet, Christ stood with me. And he says, may the Lord not hold it against them. Yet, Christ stood with me. Friends, there are times when we feel very, very isolated. We feel like dinosaurs. We feel like aliens. We feel like we're the only person out there that thinks the way we think. But as long as you know by God's word that your thinking is true, I can tell you, you are not standing alone. Christ stands with you. Don't ever think you're alone. The internal forms of opposition were oppression and exploitation of the poor by the rich. And he had to face that down hard. And the rich, to their credit, took the open rebuke and did everything that needed to be done to correct the abusive, exploitive situation that they had created <coughs> over the poor. We're out of time. My voice held up. I have letters A through V and lessons from what I've just talked about. We won't go through all that. But I will come back to the one thing I said. The whole issue here, the success that we see with Nehemiah, was because he was a servant of God who believed God. The wall that got built was not because of them. The text says literally, God did it. And the most amazing thing about that verse is that the pagans, the unbelievers, recognized God did it. Isn't that what we all want? To live life in such a way that even the non-believers say, that's God. That's not them. That's God. We pray all the time, God, may they see you in me. Well, they did with Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem because they maintained the faith in spite of all the opposition. I'm not adequate for this, but Jesus is. And if Jesus tells us we can overcome because we have been made overcomers, folks, there's no excuse for not overcoming.
That doesn't mean we show, don't show compassion and we don't come to the aid. Remember, Nehemiah said, when the attack comes, blow the horn and we'll all come running. And I've already preached on that. When you're under attack and you feel yourself, you're just going to give in and throw in the towel and walk away. Sound the alarm. We want to stand with you. We want to pray for you. We want to encourage you. We want to be used in each other's lives to be strength, to be strengthened, to be given grace to endure. And many times we simply need other people to know what we're going through and not to just suffer the affliction in silence, but to speak up. Pray for me because I don't think I can go through another day. And just knowing that folks are praying gives such strength and encouragement to our souls. Amen? I'll close us in prayer. God, I thank you for your faithfulness to us. We will never be as faithful to you as you are to us. And our faithfulness, God, ultimately depends on us simply trusting in you, not trying to screw up the courage or muster more strength, dig down deep, but it's to turn to you, O oh God, to come to the throne of grace, to receive grace in our time of need and to know that we will never be turned away. You are the faithful one, Lord Jesus. <coughs> you have made us overcomers because you yourself have overcome. You have defeated the devil. You have crushed his head. You have overcome the world. <coughs> and you have set us free from the power of sin and death. And I pray, God, in this time where it does appear that you've given Satan an extraordinary long leash, that our faith would not fail. And that when you return again for us in the rapture to receive us to yourself or whether it's through death in joining you in heaven, that you will see faith in each of us. Thank you, God, for the gift of prayer that we can talk to you and know that we've been heard. And I pray, God, that we would cherish this greatest of all gift, that we can approach the holy and living one and be received, and be heard. In Christ's name, amen.